Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor of students here, and I want to welcome you to worship with us today and to hear from God's Word. Um, we are in the middle of reading through the book of Genesis together as a church. 50 days in Genesis. We just read chapter 15 this morning. Uh, Jerry, one of our deacons, read that for us. Um, and we are also preaching through the book of Genesis. So you can go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. And I hope you're reading along with us. You can always tune in on Instagram, on our YouTube page, our Facebook page, to find someone who's reading those chapters along. Uh, And you can just read along for yourself, one chapter every day, seeing what God has for us in the book of Genesis. Uh, Today, in Genesis chapter 14, we are going to spend some time with Abraham. Now, he's called Abram in this chapter because God hasn't changed his name yet, but we're going to call him Abraham to keep it simple today. And we're going to see him meeting a king named Melchizedek. I'm going to say Melchizedek a lot, so I'm going to try and pronounce that correctly every time. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. He's an important guy, uh, a mysterious figure, but we're going to see um, why he matters so much and why Scripture calls attention to him. Now, a little context. You might remember that God called Abraham to leave his country, to leave his home, and to travel into this unknown land called Canaan. Uh, And Abraham did so. And and when he got there, God promised him that he was going to bless Abraham, that he had chosen Abraham for a specific purpose, that he was going to give him this entire land as his own possession, that he was going to make his children numerous to make this great nation Uh, They would be more numerous than the sand and the stars in the sea. And he promised that he would bless him and prosper him and bless anyone who blessed him and curse anyone who cursed him. He would be with him. So Abraham has received these promises. And ultimately, he promises to bless the nations through Abraham, which ultimately looks forward to Abraham's long time, 2,000 years later, descendant, Jesus. So this is Abraham. Abraham is obeyed, and he's now living with just him and his family, kind of wandering around in tents in the land of Canaan, which is still ruled by the Canaanite people, these different tribes and different uh, kind of warlords and kings, kind of a rough place to be. And we see that in the beginning of chapter 14, Abraham's nephew named Lot, who had come with him, he gets caught up in some of the politics and some of the battles in that region. Uh, the, a war broke out between a bunch of kings of these different cities, And Lot's city that he's living in, Sodom, is captured and looted and burned and destroyed. And Lot and his family are carried off with the other prisoners by these enemy invading kings. And Abraham, he hears about this, and so he gets his guys together, and they go take off. And they're going to go get him. And they stage this nighttime sneak attack, Liam Neeson take-in attack, and, and get him back. They defeat this king, and they rescue all the prisoners, and they come back, right? And this is where we pick up with Abraham. He's just fought this battle. He's just won and rescued these people. And he comes back and meets with two local Canaanite kings. The first is Melchizedek of Salem, and the second is Bera, king of Sodom. So let's read here in Genesis 14. This is verse 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Kedolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abraham, in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram 
gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Church, let's pray together and then see what God has for us in his word. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can gather as a church to hear what you have for us. Father, we pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so these two Canaanite kings that Abram, Abraham meets with, Melchizedek and Bera, the kings of Sodom and the kings of Salem, despite being two Canaanite guys who are kings of cities in about the same area, these guys are total opposites in a lot of different ways. We don't know a ton about Bera, king of Sodom, but we do know that Sodom was just about the worst place ever. Uh, Just a couple chapters later, God is going to see the sin and the wickedness in Sodom, and it's going to be so bad that he is going to wipe the city off the face of the earth. It is going to be totally destroyed, totally an example of God's judgment against sin and evil. That's how bad a place this is. So this is not a good, upstanding guy, right? He is the leader of this awful, horrible wickedness. That's what we know about Sodom. Not a great place. In fact, Sodom becomes the example in the Bible of a city that is the object of God's wrath, that has gone so far down the path of sin that there's no coming back. There's nothing to do but face God's judgment. And Melchizedek, he's um, a little bit different. He is also uh, a little bit mysterious here, but he stands out in a lot of different ways ways. He's not mentioned in the battle before. He wasn't caught up in this turf war that's going on. Um, And we're not told much about Salem, this city, during this time. We don't really know much about it. We don't hear how long he ruled or where he came from. We don't know his family or his origin. He just pops in here for a couple verses and then disappears, never to be heard from again. But there's something really strange about him. Unlike the other Canaanites who kind of worship their own idols and gods and do whatever it is they think is right in their own eyes, the Bible tells us that Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. He is a person who knows the God of Abraham, and he knows him so well that he is his priest. He has a good relationship with him. He knows how to properly worship him and how to help other people properly worship God. This is really unusual and really strange in this pagan land, this land of of idols and evil and, and just lostness. He shows up out of nowhere, and he brings food and and kind of a a resting place for the people who have just come back from the battle. He shows them hospitality, and then he offers a blessing to Abraham. And in his blessing, he recognizes that it's not Abraham's tactical skill or his strength that won him this battle. He says, no, this is because God has blessed you. God is with you, and God gave you this victory into your hands. God and his promises are the reason that you had victory today. Even though he's a Canaanite king, he knows and worships the true God, which is shockingly different from everyone else that Abraham encountered. And then he's gone. He disappears. Melchizedek is so interesting that in only these few verses, he fascinated the Jewish people who were reading this for centuries. 
They want to know what's up with this guy. And they had all these crazy theories on who this person might be and how exactly does he know God? And why do we not get any more details? Why doesn't Abraham spend more time with this guy? We don't know. And by the time Christians began to read the Bible in light of Jesus, they too said something is really important here. And so this is what we want to focus on today. We wanted to see that there are two important lessons that this mysterious Melchizedek has to teach us. There's two lessons that we can take here today. The first is that Melchizedek points us forward to Jesus. Melchizedek points us forward to Jesus. In only these couple verses, he makes us look forward to the promises of Jesus and to the arrival of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. And if we study him and we look at him, he will make us see and savor and love Jesus even more. Now you might say, Tim, that's, that's a little bit of a stretch here. I don't actually see that. That's a fair question, right? That's a fair question. But luckily for us, we're not lost in the wilderness like people were for centuries trying to figure out what's going on here. We have a lot of extra help to see what this means and see what happens. We have the rest of the Bible that's been given to help us understand and apply Genesis 14. The best interpreter of Scripture, especially when it gets confusing, is Scripture. We can look at the places where other biblical writers have, have reflected on this, how they've studied it and how they've interpreted it, how they've shown us the pieces. They've connected the dots for us, right? We can trust that the Holy Spirit guiding these authors of Scripture has given them understanding they need to correctly tell us what it means. Remember, God guides human history. He guided these events that were happening and he guided the people who wrote it down for us in his word. Why? to point all things to Christ, to bring all things to the gospel. The Bible fits together and tells this story. And so there are images that point forward and they can only be understood later. We can trust the Bible to show us how to read the Bible. And so how does the Bible talk about Melchizedek? Well, the first person who helps us understand is King David about a thousand years later. Um, David was a king of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, and he writes about a promised savior who's going to come called the Messiah, the, cho- the chosen one, who's going to come and deliver his people from everything that oppresses them. He's going to defeat all of their enemies. He's going to usher in this golden era of peace and, and favor from God. And this would be one of his descendants, a king from David's line who would do this. But in Psalm 110, writing about this Messiah, he shockingly connects this person to Melchizedek. Uh, on the screen is Psalm 110, verse 4. He's talking about the Messiah, and he says, The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We haven't heard Melchizedek's name since Genesis 14. And David's pulling him up and saying, You know what? The Messiah is going to be like him. He's going to follow in that same pattern that Melchizedek started. In addition to being a king, this Messiah will also be a priest. He's also going to be someone who mediates the relationship between God, uh, a holy God, and sinful people. He's going to be that bridge that will help people have a right relationship with their God. He will be a priest who is like Melchizedek. That's a big deal, and it's only this one little verse we get. He doesn't unpack it for us and explain, well, how does that work? How exactly are we going to see that play out? And that's where we jump ahead again, another thousand years past the Old Testament past Jesus' life and even his death and resurrection, till we come to the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote this book, but it is a treasure trove. It's been said that the best commentary, the best book explaining the Old Testament, helping us understand it, is free, and it's on the internet. You can go get it right now. Just Google Hebrews. It's all there to tell you. He's going to explain it. He's going to show you. Let me connect the dots for you guys. There's a lot here. We're going to move quick. He's going to help us with it, right? 
And Hebrews spends a chapter plus talking about Melchizedek and talking about this line that David wrote in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and how he points us to Jesus. Hebrews wants to show us how this prophecy about the Messiah perfectly fit Jesus who lived and died and rose again. All that he did. It's going to connect the dots for us, and it's going to turn the light on to help us see what's always been there, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, how the Old Testament is like a room that is beautiful, but the lights are turned off. We can feel little pieces of it, but we can't see the whole thing. Hebrews in the New Testament helps turn the light on for us and say, in light of Jesus, we can see what's really here. So we're going to read for a little bit from Hebrews chapter 7 to see how the Bible brings all these pieces together to show us how Melchizedek makes us see and savor Jesus more and more. So starting in verse 1, this is what Hebrews 7 reads for us. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendant of Levi who received the priestly offering have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham." But this man who does not have his descendants from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the one who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, there's a lot there, right? So we're going to break this down. Hebrews makes a couple connections and points out a couple similarities that Melchizedek has with Jesus. First, he looks at his names, right? Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And he is the king over Salem, which means peace. So he is the king of peace, and he is the king of righteousness. Now, obviously, these are just names, but they believed in the significance of these names, And they point forward to one who would be the king who was truly righteous and the king who does rule over peace between God and man. Hebrews draws this connection there. Salem is also most likely the city that would become Jerusalem, the the capital of God's nature, of God's people, Israel, and the place where Jesus would die for our sins. So there's some connections there. Secondly, he points out that there is no beginning or end to Melchizedek, right? Uh, Genesis doesn't record his parents, doesn't record his time of ruling, any of that. Now, what it's not saying is that Melchizedek was some immortal being, right? He's not one of the Eternals from Marvel's movie or anything like that. Um, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that in the story, there's no beginning or end to Melchizedek. He just kind of pops in as this sort of priest. We don't know when he started. We don't know when it ended. We don't have any details And so from a narrative perspective, from the story of Genesis, he just seems to be this ageless figure who pops in. There's no beginning or end to it. And he's saying this reminds, this rhymes almost with what we're going to see of Jesus, who is a priest without beginning or end. 
who is one without birth or without beginning in terms of like starting to exist and who will never cease to exist. He is truly the eternal one without beginning or end. It points to the better one, the more complete version of this. So there's this beginning and end part. Then third, it talks about how he is superior to Abraham. Superior to Abraham. In that culture, it would always be the elder the respected one, the one with greater wisdom, greater age, greater power, who would bless the inferior, the younger person, the less socially high, whatever it is. That was a way uh, that their society works. And so to see Abraham, who is the most like, important Jewish person, right? he's the whole start of this promised people. He's received these promises of God that are totally unique. To see him be blessed by Melchizedek indicates this superiority to him. And, and Abraham honors this by giving him a share. He tithes to him. He, he gives from what he has to support the priestly ministry of Melchizedek. So there's this strange um, superiority of Melchizedek here. And again, this points forward to the greater order, the greater line of priests, the greater priesthood that Melchizedek r- uh, points to. That's not him, but will come and will be fulfilled by one of Jesus' descendants. And, and there's even a place in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am greater than Abraham. Where he too says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I too am greater than my long dead ancestor. I am the one who's the greater priest who's come. And then lastly, the best and most clear parallel we have here is that he is both, both a priest and a king. He is a priest and a king of the Most High God. This is something that did not happen in Israel. David could not be a priest. It is strictly forbidden. There is a priestly job. Their job is to mediate, to be the ones who make sure that the worship of God goes forward as God wants it to go, to protect a sinful people from the holiness of God, to help them communicate with him, to help them receive forgiveness from their sins when they mess up. That is a job that is just for them. And then there's the kingly job, who is for the line of David, for his family. And their job was to govern the people, to lead them, to deliver them from the threats that come against them, to to provide leadership and vision and and faithfulness to God. These are two different things, and they were not to mix. That's too much for one person, one human person, to do. But here we see a priest king, one who does both. One who has both the royal power and the God-appointed mediator. This is a big deal. This is the only priest king we see, and he points forward to one who will do both jobs perfectly. Someone who is both the perfect king from David and the perfect priest, the perfect one to stand between God and sinful man. And this is why David highlights this in Psalm 110, that he is forever a priest and a king. This is who the Messiah is. All of these similarities foreshadow Jesus. Jesus is the only one who fits this bill. He is the only eternal one. He is the only one who is perfectly righteous, who rules over perfect peace. He is the only one who is a priest without beginning or end. He is the only one who will really make peace and mediate between God and mankind. The only one who deliver from his sins, uh, from our sins. And the most helpful phrase, I think, is in 7 verse 3. And it said that Melchizedek's priesthood resembles the Son of God. There's a resemblance here. Melchizedek is a shadow, right? The literary term for this, he's he's a type that points forward to the archetype, the original, the, the real thing. He's just a shadow that points forward to the solid, real thing that's to come. 
Melchizedek's story and the details that are recorded in Scripture and his very life are arranged by the Holy Spirit. They're preserved perfectly to point us to something better that is coming, to give us this hint and this idea to, to kind of get our attention so that we look forward and we see the greater thing that's on the horizon, to see the real thing that is coming. They create an outline, a job description almost. They, they leave these big shoes to fill that only one person can fit into, and this is Jesus. And only once we've seen the real thing, once we know Jesus and what he's done, then we can look back and see the dots connect. That's what Hebrews can do. They can look back in light of Jesus and see this line connect and understand Melchizedek correctly. We see this all the time in books and movies and stories that are crafted by a good author. They plant seeds in the early chapters, in the early parts of the movie, whether it's a visual, whether it's a character, whether it's a line of dialogue, they're going to pay off later. And by the time we get to the payoff, by the time we get to the end, the climax where all the, the loose ends are pulled together, we see, oh, it's been there all along. And now I can see the dots clearly. Only once we see the face does the shadow make sense. And so what is this order of Melchizedek? What is it pointing us to? It's telling us that Jesus is the great high priest, the greatest, the best, who eternally brings us into the presence of God who intercedes for us, us who are sinful, who are broken to a holy and perfect God so that we can really know him and not be destroyed, so that we're not going to face the judgment of a city like Sodom and the evil of that land. He brings us into God's presence. He's the only mediator, the Bible tells us, who takes away our sin, who pays its penalty, who pleads our case, and who declares us not guilty. He's the perfect priest. But more than that, Jesus is king. He is the king, the best king, the only king who rules as the promised savior and the promised deliverer. There's a theologian by the name of John Calvin who writes about these two offices, he calls them, these two jobs that Jesus does. He says, the royal power of Christ is combined with the office of priest, and therefore he has infinite power to secure our salvation and to protect us by his guardian care. He is the great priest king who rules and who intercedes without end, without opposition. And so the people of God, the followers of Jesus, have nothing to fear. There is no power that our king cannot defeat. There is no enemy who can stand against him. There is no sin or brokenness in our lives that he cannot mediate, that he cannot make atonement for, that he cannot cover. We are saved and we are ruled by the great priest king. We can rejoice and rest in Jesus. So Melchizedek is just this much smaller previews of these great promises of God. And so when we see him, when we see this faint outline, this shadow, it should lead us to savor Jesus, to look at what is better and to enjoy it, to rejoice, to praise God, to sing out in thanksgiving that we don't have to settle for the shadow. We don't have to settle for the preview. We have the real thing. We can rejoice in that forever. Melchizedek points us forward to Jesus. There's a second thing that I think uh, Melchizedek shows us here. That Melchizedek reminds us to choose the better way. Melchizedek reminds us to choose the better way. And this takes us all the way back to Abraham, where we started in Genesis 14. He's meeting these two kings. He's meeting Melchizedek. He's meeting Salem. And they present him with a choice, with two ways to go forward. Now remember, Abraham had received these glorious promises of God, but they hadn't paid through yet. He's wandering around in the wilderness in tents. He's been promised that he's going to be a nation. He doesn't have any kids. 
He's been promised that all of this land is going to belong to him, but it sure looks like it's ruled by these pagan Canaanite kings at the moment. His, his nephew has just been captured and, and the city was lived and destroyed. It's an unstable time. Some of these promises he's going to have to wait years for. Others he will never see. And they'll be received by his children and his great, 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 great grandchildren. And so he was tempted many times to try and achieve the promises of God on his own terms. To try and do it his way instead of waiting for God's way. And these two kings represent that. When he meets with Bera of Sodom, he comes bargaining. He says, Abram, you take some of this, but I want this part. I want to give you an alliance. You give me the spoils, I'll give you the people, and we can build an alliance here. We can be strong together. He represents a king who is strong in worldly terms. It's a military power. It's a good alliance. It's a strong city to to begin to build a coalition, to someday be a major figure, to be a power in the land of Canaan. This is a shrewd and a strong move, but Abraham doesn't align with Sodom. His first words, Bera, to Abraham are give me. That really encapsulates who he is. It's all about give and take and power. Melchizedek of Salem shows us a different way. His first words are blessing. They're giving. And he doesn't come bargaining and looking for some military alliance He doesn't come demanding a share of the spoils. He comes blessing Abraham and recognizing that this is all by God's power and by God's blessing. He doesn't bring military power or strength. He doesn't bring riches won in battle. But he recognizes that the only true blessing comes from God, from the most high God. And that they come freely, but in God's timing, not ours. Abraham chose to do it God's way. He chose to honor the blessing of Melchizedek, to recognize that he is correct when he attributes all this to God and his power. And in doing so, he chooses to wait. He chooses not to go with the wealth and the power of Sodom, but to go with the the poverty and the waiting and the wandering of Jesus, of God, that he's been called to. He wasn't going to make himself a ruler of Canaan, but he was going to trust in the promises of God. He would wait for God's way. The better choice, the better king, Melchizedek reminds us two things. He reminds us that we too have to choose to follow the better king. We have to choose to follow the better king. There are many powers and rulers and authorities in this world who will offer their own way to go. They will offer their own rule to us. These are the kings we can choose from. They promise to rescue us from our problems, to deliver us from whatever we're facing, to provide prosperity and spoil and good things for us. But these kings, they're whatever we trust in to save us, whatever we trust in to bring us the things that we want, to give us prosperity. We can choose a leader, a person who's going to deliver us, who's going to be the promise, the one to lead us to the promised land. This can be a political party, a political leader, a political ideology, anything. We can choose a career, a job. It's going to pay so much. It's going to give me all the things I need. It's going to provide my master plan for what my life's going to look like and and fulfill all of my needs. We can choose to play the game, take the right shortcuts, to overlook the right rules to end up where we want to be. We can choose the most appealing pleasure that feels good, that's the most exciting, the most enticing sin out there. All of these things, if we let them, will rule over us. All of them. They will be our king if we let them. 
But like the king of Sodom, they overpromise but underdeliver. These are the things that make sense to the world. These are things that the, everyone around us is chasing, all of the things that the, the people around us value. But all these things end in death. Following any other king leads only to death. Melchizedek reminds us that there is a better king and a better way. His blessing reminded Abraham that it's only God's power that endures, and it's only his blessing that is real, that we should care about. And those are the only things that can deliver. There's no amount of treasure or wealth or alliance or power that will save us, that will deliver us, that will be worth it. Sodom looked good then, but in just a few chapters, it's going to be ashes. Nothing left. Those promises don't last. Melchizedek reminds us that as God's people, we serve a different king and we walk a different way. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong heart and soul, body and mind to King Jesus, and we can serve no other. No other king has his power. No other king has his goodness. His ways look different and strange to the world. They can be mocked. They can be called weak. They can be called foolish. But when we surrender our way and our plans and our values and our honors and wait on him, he will lead us. He will deliver us. His promises are faithful and sure. He is the only king we can follow. As followers of Jesus, we must choose to follow the better king, King Jesus, no one else. Secondly, Melchizedek reminds us that we must choose to trust the better priest. Just as there are many would-be kings in our world, there are a lot of so-called priests. This is anyone who has a way of dealing with our brokenness and our pain and our sin. Anyone who promises to take away these burdens that live inside of us, right? Anyone who promises to make us whole, to make us right, to make us holy. There are those who deny that sin is real in the first place. You're already good. Do what is right for you. Find your truth. Find whatever works for you, and that is good. Declare it good, whatever you want to do. Others believe that people are inherently good, and if we only trust in people, we only trust in the structures we build, in the progress we can make, that we can solve all of our problems, that we can deal with the brokenness of our world on our own terms, in our own strength, in our own power. Many religions, even some versions that are taught as Christianity, teach that we can remove sin through the right prayers, the right rituals, the right actions. We can be holy enough on our own terms, to come before God. We can try harder, be better, pray the right thing, exactly. But none of these priests can deliver. None of these priests can treat our brokenness. None of them can make us whole. The gospel reminds us that there is a greater priest, an eternal priest, who deals with our sin once and for all, all, who makes us right, who brings us into the presence of God. This priest is righteous, and he brings peace. Hebrews uses Melchizedek to show that Jesus is superior to all of the priests, all of their systems, all of their ways of dealing with our sin. Only Jesus can deal with the brokenness that we all share. Only he can make us holy and bring us into the presence of God. So we must choose to trust the better priest, to not settle. So Calvary Church, don't settle for the inferior priests. Don't settle for the inferior kings who overpromise and underdeliver. Don't chase the shadows when the real thing is here. Don't look backwards. Look forwards. Look to what we've been given in Jesus. Jesus alone is our priest king, and he offers a better way, the only way. 
Jesus described two roads. One is, is big and broad and crowded. It says there are many paths along this road, and it leads nowhere. It leads down the way of Sodom. And then there is the narrow path, the small path, and few are those who walk it, but it is the way that leads to life. It is the better way, the way of Jesus, our priest and king. So as we look to what is better, as we choose what is better, as we look to Jesus, as we seek and savor him and choose to trust in him as the better king and priest, let's end today with the words of Hebrews in chapter 10. As Hebrews pulls all of these threads together and tells us to keep going, to hold on to Jesus, to follow in the way that he has given us, to choose the better. This is Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray together, church. Father, I pray that as your people, as your church, you would give us confidence in your gospel. That you would give us confidence that we serve a better king. That you would give us trust that we are made clean and holy by a better priest. Father, I pray with this confidence we would enter into your presence, that we would delight in knowing you, in being with you. Father, help us to hold fast, to hold to our confession, to hold to this better way, because you who have promised, you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.